All right. Well, good morning and welcome to Alpine First Baptist Church. We are glad that you are here with us this morning as we have concluded our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and now we are endeavoring to undertake a new sermon series, an eight-week series on a life that is called. Coming off of the Sermon on the Mount, taking such a slow drive as we did through it, there's a lot of information that Jesus has given us that should shape and color our lives. And so for me, what I don't want us to do as a church is to just simply take everything that Jesus has taught us and then go put it on the shelf and then move on to something new. What I want us to do is take the callings from Jesus, the callings that he has given us in this, and see that we have a life that is called Alpine. We have a life that is called. Now, when I was a kid, probably about 14 years old, my mom came upstairs one day to sit down and have one of those talks, you know, the talks that your parents will have with you. And she very seriously told me that, John, you need to figure out what you want to do with the rest of your life. Now, I was 14, and I was happy eating Doritos and playing Tiger Woods on Xbox. I wasn't really thinking about what was coming down the road. And she didn't put it so seriously like I needed to decide in that moment, but she very pointedly let me know that I need to start thinking about what my life is going to do and be and look like. Now, she subtly gave me the hint to be a nurse anesthetist because you don't have to go through all the schooling of a doctor, but they make good money like a doctor, and I was trying to get out of school, so why would I want to do that? That quickly went in one ear and out the other. But it did start me on this journey of thinking, what in the world am I called to do? What is my life to look like? Now, in that season of life, it wasn't very helpful that Rick Warren had just come out with a book called The Purpose Driven Life and how everything was centered around your purpose, your calling, who you are to be. And these preachers and these teachers, they made it more intense and more pressure-filled because I needed to figure out who I was and what I was supposed to do. What's my calling? Could I miss my calling? Has Jesus called me to something and I'm going to miss it? Where am I to go? So for us as a church, what I want us to see very clearly is that we all have a calling. And it's a calling that meets us no matter where we are, what we're doing, what season in life, we are called. Now, the first calling that I want us to see this morning is that we have been called by Scripture and by King Jesus to believe. We have a calling to believe. Now, this might seem like, okay, good deal, easy enough, let's move on. But if you'll open with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, we're going to be in verse 1. Verse 1 today. Now, we'll talk about some other verses. We're going to jump over to Hebrews. But I want us to see in this one verse right here, Our calling on our lives, no matter who you are, where you're at, whatever season, you have a calling, and that calling is to believe. Jesus says this in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, there are three things that we need to have preloaded in our brain of what's happened in this moment before Jesus has told his disciples this. The first one is this. The Gospel of John opens up with foundational beliefs about who God is, who Jesus is, and what he has come to do. If you have spent any time in the first chapter of John, you will see this grand opening about the Word who was with God, was was with God, and is God. And that through this Word, 
everything has been created, and this word has become flesh to dwell among us. Now we see this word is Jesus. This is foundational to our understanding of who's speaking here. Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me, because he is the one who was and is and is to come, the one who is over all things. Number two, the disciples have seen everything with Jesus from the miraculous, They've seen him heal men that have never walked before. They have seen him heal people that were on such the outskirts of community, no one would let them in, no one would touch them, and Jesus reaches out and touches them, and they're healed. Earlier, a few chapters earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus goes to the tomb of a dead man who's been there for so long, Scripture says his body stank. And he says, what, Lazarus, come out. And he rises and he walks out and everybody is just in this dismay of what's just happened. The disciples are seeing all of this. But the disciples are also hearing Jesus teach. They're hearing him say things to people like, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees will ask, who has the power to forgive sins except God alone? They've seen Jesus create enemies, not because of evil he has done or evil he has done to them, but the claims he has made. And because of this, they want to kill him because he claims to be the Messiah, the promised one. The third thing that we need to see is that Jesus has just told his disciples that one of them is going to betray him. But once he's dead, he will rise again. And then we get to John 14, where Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. We know the rest of the story. Jesus is killed. He miraculously raises. He goes and he tells the disciples. And then for the next 2,000 years, it changes the course of human history forever. But let's be honest for a minute. Like, Let's remove ourselves from this story and just talk about it for a second. Isn't it a little weird that we gather every Sunday morning to worship a Middle Eastern man who lived 2,000 years ago, born in a small town in Bethlehem. Isn't that a little strange? That for the past 2,000 years, people have been gathering every Sunday morning to worship this man named Jesus. Because we believe, even though he's not physically here present with us, that he is physically alive, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's given us his spirit to live our lives through, when we think about that, if we honestly think about that, maybe even from a non-believer's perspective, people could say, okay, yeah, right. Like, this is just a little far-fetched. And this is the problem. When we hear the charge that we are called to believe, this is a challenge that people experience. Maybe you've not experienced it. Maybe you've never stopped to wonder. But I can tell you, over the past few years as pastor, I've talked with many people that have had a real crisis of faith, who have really difficult questions about where God is, why they don't believe, can I really trust this entire Jesus thing, how can I know? I've told my own story about my own crisis of faith when I started college and wondering if I can really believe. And if you've ever experienced that, or maybe you're in the midst of things, it can get even more complicated. When you walk into a church and you see people that have a really strong faith, that they don't deny anything, they are just like 
guns ablazing. You see it on social media. All of these experiences people say that they have, and you start to think, I don't have this experience. I don't understand what they're going through and why they have so much power to believe. People have very difficult times with what they've experienced, what they're feeling and wondering, do I really believe? And then that's where most people stop. They'll hear these words of Jesus, believe in God, but believe also in me. They'll say, I don't know if I can trust Jesus. I believe that there's a God, but I just don't know. I don't know if I can believe. But before we get to that part, we need to see the first words of Jesus. What does he open up with? Do not let your hearts be troubled. If you have a, um, the sermon notes on the back, this is the first one here. Belief is not an emotion. Belief is not an emotion. Belief is the response to your emotions. Your beliefs can make you emotional, but belief is not an emotion. One of the primary factors that lead people to questioning their belief is interpreting their feelings as beliefs. One of the primary reasons people question their belief is interpreting their feelings as belief. Events or experiences can leave us questioning core beliefs that have dictated how we act or think. For example, I've seen this. I'm sure that you've seen this as well. This happens with parents who have a son or a daughter who starts practicing a lifestyle that is sinful. They might, say, be living with their boyfriend or girlfriend. They may have left the church for those reasons. They may be pursuing a same-sex relationship, whatever it is. They know that these lifestyles do not coincide with their faith or the faith that their children once professed. They love their children and they desperately don't want to break relationship with them. But they know their feelings for their children and the lifestyles of their child put them at odds with church and their odds with confession. So then they start to question, well, wait, I love my child and doesn't God love all of us and God loves them and God is love? So this is a good thing. They're not harming anyone. And so their experience, their love for their child starts to put them at odds with their beliefs. And so they'll start to pull away from the confessions of the church. They'll start to glaze over sin. And we don't want to call that sin. I just want to love my child because I know if I stand by the church, I'll break relationship with my child. Their feelings dictate what it is that they believe. Maybe you've not experienced that. Maybe you've experienced something like this. Another example would be whenever tragedy or, or death or an extreme trial comes into your life. Our first instinct is to ask the question, what in the world is going on? What is happening? Why is this happening to me? Is God out to punish me? Is God judging me for the things that I've done and now all of this tragedy is happening on my life? Then despair, grief, sorrow, flood our souls, and we think it shouldn't be this way. Why is it this way? I thought God was good, and this is not good. What we can tend to do is distort our feelings and use those as our primary truths to believe instead of looking at the words and the confessions of Jesus. Last week we saw Jesus say, hear my word and do my word. His word lasts forever. So they start to question, well, is God even good? Does God even love me? Now, this is kind of similar, I think, uh, to one of the dilemmas that the disciples are facing right now. I don't know that they're necessarily 
questioning God's love, but they are questioning everything that they've been taught. They know, they believe that the Messiah is coming and he's going to rule and reign and set everything in order. And now Jesus is saying that he's going to die. I can imagine Peter standing in the way and be like, no, dude, Jesus, you just raised Lazarus from the dead, man. If, if anybody can stop death, it's you. What are you talking about you're going to die? That doesn't make any sense. For the disciples, what they believed was going to happen and what Jesus is saying is going to happen clashes with who, what they think about the future. What they expected, the Messiah to rule and reign, and Jesus has said he's going to be crucified. Jesus has disoriented them in a way. But how does Jesus comfort them? He brings them back to right belief. He brings them back to right belief. Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. Belief is this. It is an acceptance that something is true or that something exists. Trust, faith, or confidence in someone or something if you are here today and you feel like you don't believe, you feel like you don't know how to believe, if you can really trust, know this. Belief is not an emotion. Belief has reason. And this is one of, without a doubt, the most wonderful blessings that God has ever given us. He has given us reason to believe. The primary reason that we have to believe is that he has revealed himself. Our faith is not without reason. Our faith is not a theory or an idea. It's not simply a system of beliefs, but rather a God who has revealed himself to us. How has God revealed himself to us? First, by his creation. Already in existence, before time, matter, space, the eternal, self-existent God creates all that exists Bruce Waltke says this, the creation account is a highly sophisticated presentation designed to emphasize the power, majesty, and wisdom of the creator God. When I was at Louisiana College, and it was my freshman year, um, and I was taking values, faith, and studies, which is really just an apologetics class, and I had never really handled any of this information before, but our professor taught us this. No matter what you're believing, no matter what you believe, your system of beliefs, whether you are agnostic, atheist, Christian, Buddhist, whatever it is, every system of beliefs must answer four basic questions. Where do we come from? What went wrong? How do we fix it? And where are we going? Where did we come from? What went wrong? How do we fix it? And where are we going? Where did we come from? If you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at the images of the James Hubble telescope and how they have, we now have images of deep space that we've never seen so clearly before. And you know what we haven't found? Any life anywhere. Now think about that. We now have the ability with the power of this telescope to see beyond our solar system, beyond anything that we've ever seen prior before. And you know what we haven't found? any life. But you know what we do see within our own life, within this creation, is that we are so fine-tunedly made. Did you, did you know that if the earth tilted on its axis one more degree, or if there was one more percent of hydrogen or oxygen or nitrogen in our atmosphere, there would be no life on planet earth. 
It is so incredibly fine-tunedly and detailed. Next, consider this. Why is the earth in any order at all? If this is all chaotic, all random happening of events, why do we consistently continue to spin around the sun? It's because it has order. Now consider the creation account that we have. God, in Genesis 1, he creates, he speaks, he sees, he separates, he names, he appoints, he blesses, and he finishes. He makes it holy, and then he dwells in our midst. Here's what we understand about the Genesis 1 account, that God is not the sky, sun, moon, stars, water, animals, land, or anything else that God has created. The creation is neither God nor a part of God. He is absolute. He is independent in his existence, whereas creation has derived existence from him and continually depends on him as sustainer. Through creation, what do we see about God? First, we see this. This is bullet point number one under what has God revealed himself. We see that he's transcendent. He is above and beyond everything. He affects his will by his word. He has authority over all things. Who do we see Jesus to be? By the power of his word, people live, laymen walk, creation obeys. Who is this Jesus that we worship? The second, the first is he's transcendent. The second, here's a $5 theological word that you can go home and say that you learned at church today. It's a seity. It means that God is completely satisfied and complete within himself. He lacks nothing, needs nothing. He is full of power, love, and purity. Jesus says, before the foundations of the earth, the Father was loving the Son, meaning that Jesus was with God in his claim before anything was created. Our triune God is satisfied within himself because he's perfect in love, power, and purity. He is three in one, the Godhead. He needs nothing. He's satisfied within himself. So here's the third thing that we learn about creation. Because he is transcendent, and he's satisfied within himself. Here's what we learn about this. Because he's created us, this means he is gracious. He freely initiates the revelation of himself and blesses us through it. He is truthful, representing faithfully who he is, what he has done, and how he relates to us. He creates Adam and Eve, and does he leave them to figure it out? No, he walks with them. He's created them to co-rule with him, to be a blessing to the earth. Our God is gracious in this way. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen. We can see through creation that there is an all-powerful, all-good God. Next we see, or lastly we see in this, there are more, but I've only given us four today, is that he's relational. He creates man and woman to take care of his good world alongside him. He teaches and instructs. He walks and he talks. He knows them and he is known to them. Consider that blessing. The all-powerful, transcendent God, does he know them intimately? Yes. But he also makes himself known to them. 
He is transcendent, all-powerful, completely sufficient God, and he's relational. And you know what he calls all of this? Good. He calls it all good. He has revealed himself in his creation. And then the author of Hebrews says that in these last days, he has made himself known by his son. So here's the deal. He has given us reason to believe through his revelation. And now we see that he has given us reason to believe through his character. This is where most people might pause and say the opposite. Now, he's given me reason not to believe because of his character. And this is why it is so crucial for us to follow our calling to believe, to have a reason to believe grounded through the revelation of God by his word and in his son. There are people who are desperately, desperately hurting because they have severely distorted, they have a severely distorted view of God and how he is responding to them by their experiences in their lives. They think God must hate them because of what they are suffering through and who they have understood God to be. We look at the brokenness in our lives and the lives around us, and we will say, if God is good, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? This is exactly the question I asked in uh, 2008 when my sister lost her first child in the womb. I I could not compute, I could not comprehend how an all-good, all-loving God would allow this to happen to my sister. Now, what happened is one evening, I was sitting on the front porch, and I was reading a book by Tim Keller called The Reason for God. And he brought this question to the forefront, this question exactly that I was wrestling with. If God is good, why does he allow this to happen? But he stopped you, and he asked you this question. Or he stopped you, and he said this, that's the wrong question to ask. When the question should be, because God is holy, righteous, and just, why does he allow anything good to happen at all? If we know God to be the one who is holy, righteous, and just, who cannot bear to stand the sight of evil, why does he allow anything good to happen at all? And in reading that, it was the first deep breath I took in a while, because Back, what it brought in front of me was my own sin and the weight of it in front of a holy and righteous God. Where do we come from? And we see that the world has been fine-tunely made. What went wrong? If we look within our own lives, we know that we are not perfect in power and purity. We are not perfect in love and compassion. But evilness comes from within. We are sinful people who have rebelled against a holy God. So the question is, why should he allow anything good to happen at all? But belief is not an emotion. Belief has reason, and that belief leads us to Jesus. Consider Jesus. In his humility, gentleness, compassion, and mercy, Jesus, who created the fox to have a hole and the bird to have a nest, comes to earth with no place to lay his head. Jesus, who loves perfectly and fully. Jesus, in this moment, is telling his disciples to not be discouraged, to believe in God, believe also in me. And then you hear Philip say, well, it would just be just enough, Jesus, if you show us the Father. If you could just show us the Father, then we could see and believe. And you know what Jesus says? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus shows us the character of God 
who God has claimed to be in the Old Testament, but now the character of God fully living among us in the life of Jesus. The God who's perfectly satisfied within himself, the God at the very word of power, created order, bursts forth, but now he becomes flesh to sweat, get tired, cry, laugh, get cuts on his hand, calluses. When we see the Jesus who was with God before the foundation of the world come and stand accused before a high priest and keep his mouth shut as they led him to his crucifixion, Scripture says he kept his mouth shut like a lamb led to the slaughter. We see this representation of God in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Then we see the Lord Jesus comes to clear the guilty by taking on guilt. He made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. Why does a good God allow all this evil to happen? He doesn't. Why does God allow evil to happen? He's putting an end to it. He's made us a way to the Father through Jesus. And one day, Scripture tells us, he's making it all new. Everything that in your life, all of these experiences that you've dealt with, all of the sin and the shame that you have, you can freely give it to Jesus and look forward to the hope that you have in him. You may have had drastic experiences in your life where you think that God's angry at you. He's out to get you. He's punishing you. But he's laid it all on Jesus. And he's promised to make all things new. Believe in this Lord Jesus. Tim Keller says this, when God sent salvation through Jesus, he didn't send an airtight argument or system of beliefs, but he sent an airtight person in Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples, believe in me or at least believe in me by the evidence of my works. Jessica and I have been married for eight years now. That's right, it's eight years. I did the math yesterday. I want to make sure before I said it out loud. But I knew it was eight years. And we have made a commitment to our marriage for the rest of our lives. Now, how can I trust Jessica? And how can Jessica trust me to keep our relational commitment of marriage for the next 30, 40, 50 years? How is it that she can trust me for days unseen? And how is it that I can trust her for days unseen for the next 50 years? Because she can look at my character. I can look at her character. We can know by the promise that we've made that we will remain committed to each other. Now, Jessica and I are sinful, fallen people. Our character is often not the best. But the point is to now look at Jesus and say, how can we trust him in the days unseen? How can I trust him in the tragedy, grief, and pain in my life? Because I can look at his character And I can see that he did not stand far away, but he came to live and suffer and die for us. I can look at his character and I can see that he is good. And I have reason to believe, Alpine, you have reason to believe by looking at Jesus' character. Belief is not an emotion. Belief has reason and belief leads us to Jesus. Now here's one thing. 
uh, that I appreciate about the Bible, and I hope you will too. The Bible doesn't hold any punches from the absolute failure and mess that people make of things. Story after story, God is telling a person or his people to do something, they distort it, they sin, and then God redeems. And this is beneficial for us in a few ways, because the Bible doesn't paint these superheroes of the faith without flaws, doubts, questions, failures, rebellion. They can come to God and see him faithful. One of my favorite stories that can be hard to miss, or I'm sorry, it can be easy to miss in the scriptures is the story of Jesus' half-brother, James. Now, we know James as writing this wonderful letter that gives us probably the biggest gunt punch of Christian living in our lives. He holds nothing back. It's a wonderful read, and it's a tough read. And we look at James, and we think, man, of course you have this faith. Of course you would believe this way. You lived with the guy for how many years, right? But that wasn't always the case. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. His nickname was Camel Knees because he had calluses on his knees from praying so much. And it is said that he was martyred by being taken to the top of the temple and being thrown to his death. Now, who does that remind us of? It reminds us of Jesus being tempted by Satan and Satan saying, throw yourself down and your angels will come and catch you. But with James, he's just thrown down. He's thrown off the temple. And they run down to go see James dead. But you know what? They find the man's alive. So what do they do? Do they nurse him back to health? No, they pick up stones and they kill him. James had an incredible faith that would allow men to throw him off a building and be stoned to death. That would allow him to live a life that would die for his half-brother, who he now believes is the Lord. But did James always have that faith? If you look at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, Verse 20, it says, Jesus entered a house and a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. They tried to go get Jesus and take him home. In the Gospel of John, chapter 7, it says this about Jesus, that he went went about it in Galilee. He would not go about it in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see your works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Here are his brothers catching Jesus, avoiding a town because he doesn't want to get killed. They know that they want to kill him there, and they say, go do it. Prove it. If you're the man, if you are who you say you are, do it. But you know why they wanted him to go? Because they didn't believe in him. It's not because they wanted him to show himself right. It's because they didn't even believe in him. So how does James... How is it that James goes from encouraging Jesus to go to his death to now being willing to die for his brother, Jesus? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. It says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, 
you have believed in vain. What's the word that he's preached? For what I have received, I have passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at that time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. And I just imagine being the brother of, of Jesus, a half-brother of Jesus, and not believing in him, and wanting him to go to his death, and then probably seeing his crucifixion, knowing that he died, and I imagine James probably being like, good, he got what he deserved. He was a liar and a blasphemer, and then all of a sudden, here's Jesus. Here's Jesus, saying, you can believe, because I am who I say that I am. Why is it Alpine, that we can have a cert, such a firm belief is because we see the resurrected Jesus. Now you might say, ah, well, they saw him, but I haven't seen him. How is it that it could be easier for them to believe, but it's difficult for me to believe? Along these lines, uh, historian and theologian Philip Schaeff writes this about Jesus. He says, this Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon, without science and learning. He shed more light on human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet without writing a single line. He set more pens in motion and furnished themes, more sermons, oratations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. How is it that we can believe? It's because the scriptures have authority and they have a real account of a real man that came from heaven, lived, died, and rose again. If this were not the case, why would the disciples come out so boldly preaching the gospel? Was it because they got fame? Was it because they got riches? Was it because it benefited them in this life? No, they were killed for it. We can trust the account of Jesus because he's given us a reason to believe in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Now, belief calls us to one thing. Belief is not an emotion. Belief has reason. Belief uh, leads us to Jesus, and belief calls us to action. Belief, the first action that it calls us to is to repentance. What we need to understand today, this morning, there is a God, and we're not him. There is a creator, and I'm not him. Everything has its order under him. Mark opens with this call to repent and believe that the kingdom of God is at hand, and the Lord's kingdom has come near in Jesus. Repent and submit to his lordship. Seek the kingdom of God. There is one creator who rules with grace and love. Repent and come to him. There is one kingdom full of mercy, 
justice, and forgiveness. It holds people at the highest regard as noble ruins made in God's image in need of restoration that Jesus provides. And he allows us, just as he did from the beginning, to come alongside his work, to be instruments of grace and mercy and restoration that point to the Father's love and goodness and salvation in Jesus. There is one way to God. Believe in God. Repent and believe also in Jesus. Pride only sees trouble. But Jesus comes to tell us, do not let your hearts be troubled, but to come to him. The second thing that belief calls us to is belief calls us to faith. When I was in the fifth grade, uh, it's when the Left Behind series came out. Did anybody read the Left Behind series? Man, if you want a book that will just keep you up at night, especially as a fifth grader, read Left Behind. That book terrified me more than any. I was just waiting. Like at any moment, I was going to get zapped and going to be gone in the rapture. And my greatest fear, and this is the distorted fifth grader view, my greatest fear is that when the rapture would happen, I wouldn't be able to find my mom. Like I'd be lost in heaven looking. And it's like, it's Jesus. I, I just need my mom first before I can come talk to you. That was my greatest fear. I'd be riding the lawnmower looking up into the clouds, thinking at any moment, this could burst forth and come through. But belief calls us to faith. And as funny as that might be to think about the Left Behind series, there is a promise that Jesus is coming and that one day the clouds will burst forth and he will come and he will make all things new. And we have this great hope as believers, and today, today, in your life, you are one day closer to that being a reality. Believers in Jesus, you are one day closer to seeing Jesus face to face. Belief calls us to this faith. And one of the hardest things in the Christian life is remaining firm in trial and temptation and suffering and waiting. Our emotions tend to want to take over. We tend to want to question. But notice how the author of Hebrews appeals to his recipients to hold fast in the unknown. This is not a new phenomenon for us. The author of Hebrews sees a similar problem in, his, in the church that he's writing to or this group of believers that he's writing to to hold fast in the times of the unseen. Here's what he says. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through faith, uh, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness 
that comes by faith. Jumping down to verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Christian, belief calls us to faith because this is not our home. We are strangers and exiles on this land. We are waiting for the day for our faith to be fully seen. Until then, what does he say in verse 6? Draw near to God, believe that he exists, and seek him. Belief calls us to faith. And lastly, belief calls us to forgiveness. Belief calls us to an action. Belief calls us to trust the Lord, to come to him in faith, but then also to do his works. I want to share a story with you that got added um, late yesterday evening uh, as I was finishing this up. Uh, yesterday, we were at Seth's birthday party, and Lauren and I, I don't know how we got on the conversation of Corey Tim Boom, uh, but we did. And Corey Tim Boom, famous name, we all recognize that name, most likely, uh, but we probably might not recognize the deepness of her story. So after talking with Lauren about it, I immediately texted my mom, because if anybody knows, it's my mom. If anybody's read her books, it's mom. And she said, yeah, Corey, her book, uh, The Hiding Place, absolutely changed my life. So I want to share this story with you from Corey Tim Boom um, on forgiveness. Corey Tim Boom has long been known as a hero in the Christian faith and action. She was arrested by the Nazis along with the rest of her family for hiding Jews in their home during the Holocaust. She was imprisoned and eventually sent to the Ravensbrück concentration camp along with her beloved sister Betsy, who perished just days before Corey's own release on December 31st, 1944. Inspired by Betsy's example of selfless love and forgiveness amid extreme cruelty and persecution, Corey established a post-war home for other camp survivors trying to recover from the horrors that they had escaped. She went on to travel widely as a missionary, preaching God's forgiveness and the need for reconciliation. Corey's devout moral principles were tested when by chance, she came face to face with one of her former tormentors in 1947. This is an excerpt from her book, The Hiding Place. This is Corey speaking. She says this, It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and brown hat, the next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back in a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we had been sent. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. 
No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. His hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither your heaven, Father in heaven will forgive your trespasses. And I stood there with coldness, clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. Jesus' belief is not an emotion. Forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then the healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Alpine, this is a reason we are called to believe because when we believe in the God that saves, it calls us to action. It calls us to go into a dying, hurt, and broken world that needs forgiveness and needs restoration. How are we able to do it? Because we can simply come to Jesus and ask He freely gives. You can come to Jesus and ask, no matter where you've been, what you have hidden, the demons in your closet, whoever you are, Jesus freely gives. There's no prerequisite. There's no condition. There's no terms that it will will expire. It remains forever because he does. Jesus loves you. Alpine, we have been called to believe. Take this calling and believe. It's not an emotion. It has reason. It leads us to Jesus, and it calls us to action. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray, fully knowing, um, here after preaching this sermon for our people here at this church, that there are days where it's really hard to believe. And so if there are any brothers or sisters here in Christ Jesus, or maybe there are people here that have not given their life to you that are just struggling to believe, Father, I pray that they come to you humbly, laying down their pride, and cry out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, help us with our unbelief. Help us to see that you are the true creator that holds all things together by the word of your power, that this true creator that holds all things together has come down to live among us, suffered and died and lives again, and we too can live. We too can forgive because you have forgiven the greatest debt. Help us to see our great debt. 
Help us to see your great love and let us be people that share your great love with a dying and hurting community. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.